Hello and welcome to the Third Sector Podcast. I'm Lucinda Rouse, Senior Multimedia Reporter. And I'm Andy Ricketts, Acting Editor at Third Sector, leading publication for the voluntary and not-for-profit sector. This week we'll be speaking to Sir Peter Wanlis, Chief Executive of the NSPCC, about managing a charity, all the demands that, that brings, and maybe a little bit of cricket speak, who knows. And later we'll be joined by a podcast expert who will give us her pick of the top charity podcasts of the moment. But let's go straight into our main feature this week. Sir Peter Wanless has been the Chief Executive of the NSPCC for the past 10 years. Before that, he was Chief Executive of the Big Lottery Fund, now the National Lottery Community Fund, a post that marked his shift to the voluntary sector from the civil service and more specifically, director positions in the Department for Education. Peter, welcome to the Third Sector Podcast. Hello, it's great to be here. Now, I guess the first thing we should get out of the way is the slight elephant in the room. You are a big cricket fan, as anybody who follows you on social media will know. You're president of Somerset County Cricket Club, I believe. And we're recording just as play on the final day of the first Ashes Test is about to begin. Joking apart, how do you sort of juggle your cricketing interests with the demands of a busy job? I'm a big county cricket fan and poor Jack Leach is injured, so I can do without the test cricket. <laughs> My real passion is is county cricket and, and Somerset. My head is full of things to do with Somerset County <laughs> Cricket Club. It, it always has been. It's just one of those things that I obsess about. I suppose I juggle it. Like all of us, it's really healthy to have interests beyond your professional life. I have to be careful not to get too professionally involved with <laughs> with Somerset now and seek to solve, you know, all their problems for them as well as the charity's problems. But yeah, I was at Chelmsford last night watching Somerset thrash Essex, <laughs> which I didn't entirely expect, but that's put me in a good mood for, <laughs> for this morning. And more broadly, I mean, I noticed that you tweet a lot about cricket, but how do you view the use of Twitter as a charity leader? Is it a very important part of your job? Fairly. I was I was very early into Twitter. When I was at the Big Lottery Fund, I was really disappointed that the incredible grants which we were making to extraordinary organisations got very, very little publicity beyond Third Sector magazine, but sometimes <laughs> even there. And I just thought, well, if no one else is going to talk about these incredible organisations, I'm going to. So I set up a unadulterated, good news, happy presence on social media. And then it sort of grew from there. I've always thought of myself as being a very kind of accessible and approachable person. And in the early days of Twitter, I met and made lots of friends, you know, in the sector and beyond and got quite a bit of credit, I think, for being relatively approachable. And then over time, Twitter has become a sort of nastier place, I think, where you have to have quite a thick skin and people will disagree with you on significant and insignificant <laughs> things. Yeah. I tend now to still want to promote important things that are happening for children and in the NSPCC, but it's very much a, a personal account. So if you follow me, you get stuff about cricket, you get stuff about Ebsley United, you get stuff about my hapless parenting and stuff to do with the NSPCC. But I, I use LinkedIn quite a lot now. 
as well to try and promote particularly sort of professional messages in the same way. So I think I'm in a learning set with a number of leaders from other walks of life. And I think what's particularly distinct about my role as a sector leader is that I often feel there's no point in doing things if you're going to do them quietly and and no one notices, at least when it comes to impact against our charitable purpose. Mm. Now, as Lucinda said in the intro, you've been at the ISPCC 10 years. And before that, you had a, a career in Whitehall, as well as at the Big Lottery Fund. How did you find the transition from being a senior leader in the civil service to moving into the voluntary sector? And how did you manage that? The National Lottery Communities Fund, stroke Big Lottery, is that is an interesting hybrid mm. because it isn't in the sector. It's actually a non-departmental public body. It's subject to government directions. But you're a chief executive with a board of trustees and you have a great deal more opportunity to shape and influence the personality and the culture and the values of an organisation. So for me, that was the really exciting moment and why I would never go back to government, not because I didn't have incredibly interesting and intellectually stimulating roles in government with opportunities to make a a difference indirectly, but you're a cog in someone else's show. So that was complicated, but limiting relative to going into an organisation where you can develop with your board of trustees a vision and champion and develop a a culture of behaviours and ways of working that I find as interesting as increasingly, you know, as the work we do ourselves. So to be a chief executive and to be able to think about what we're doing and why and how we're doing it and why is a is a great privilege. I presume that it was quite a liberating process in a way. I mean, obviously, you're still accountable to a board of trustees, but it's very different now working in the voluntary sector, I should imagine. It was liberating and, and I probably underestimated the space I had to shape both the content and the the values of the organization when I first started as a chief executive, because I was used to serving up options and solutions to ministers and taking direction and interpreting a sense of where they wanted to go, as opposed to creating a really strong sense of where we could be as an organization, and then being challenged and supported by the trustees and, and, and people around me to to go there. So if I was having my time again, I could probably have made more progress faster than I did. I also moved into that job when my predecessor was retiring and he'd been really careful to create lots of space and opportunity for me as well. Again, I probably underestimated at the time because I was a new leader. And presumably, given your past within the government, your perspective on interacting with the government as a charity boss and political engagement as well must be quite different from people who have not got that inside the government experience. What's your view on that and how charities doing at working and campaigning with, with the government? I don't know about that. I don't know if my attitude or approach is, is that different from anyone else's. Look, I get hugely frustrated and angry and want to challenge the government 
where they are doing things which are not only getting in the way of preventing cruelty to children, but in some cases, arguably making things worse. And I, and I will campaign as vigorously as anybody else. Maybe I have a bit more sophisticated understanding of how to influence change inside government departments and have a network of people and contacts that I developed during that time. I don't know. That all erodes over time. I mean, I left Whitehall in 2008. Mm. That's a long time ago. I have been a chief executive as a job longer than any other job I've had in my life. And yet I still feel like a, you know, a young leader with so much to learn. So I think that to achieve change and shift the government, you don't have to shout at them hysterically. Sometimes you do because it's therapeutic and things are very frustrating and expressing that frustration is important to our supporters and to the change we want to achieve. But just, you know, making the fuss and saying this is terrible, that's terrible, the other's terrible, doesn't take you very far forward. One of the things I've tried really hard to do at the NSPCC ever since arriving is not simply say things which could be characterised as children's charity says things should be better for children, because we, we, we know that and it doesn't take us any further forward, or simply to say we need this much more money for A or this much more money for B, because I spent the first 10 years of my working life in, in the Treasury and there are so many letters and communications that you get from an extraordinary range of deserving and less deserving causes, all telling you what could be done with a bit more money, which again, well, we all know and understand that. But how do we shift? The NSPCC is a really strong and trusted brand and our hinterland is child protection so our charitable purpose is to prevent cruelty to children and one of the things i spend a lot of time doing is constantly bring us back to that and where are the particular areas in which we are distinctly and uniquely placed to advance progress towards that mission and writing lots of letters and associating ourselves with lots of really important causes and issues, risks diluting that focus and that impact. So try and keep us concentrated on a limited number of things which people then associate us with and understand we won't go away until decisive change has been affected. But there are you know, many and varied other places which the NSPCC could be associated with. And sometimes I expect we frustrate people by not signing every letter that I'm asked to sign to the papers or make every complaint to the government that people would like to complain about day after day, week after week. You mentioned it, obviously, you're on a kind of a learning journey as a leader. What things have you learned in your time as a charity leader that you think might be useful for other managers in the voluntary sector? I think that if I reflect really brutally honestly on my time at the, the NSPCC, I think that the charity is 
all about children and charitable purpose. So all of us as leaders need to keep coming back to the difference that we're making to our charitable purpose, not our size, but the difference that we that we make. Very many of us have hugely inspiring purposes, so that can motivate people a great deal. We can only achieve what we achieve if we can generate the money to support the purpose. So a lot of time and effort is also placed and needs to be placed on income generation, fundraising, whatever you want to call it, in order to affect the change. And I think the people can sometimes be lost in the middle because the mission is so inspiring. You can bring people in to do a bit for the mission. And so long as a reasonable amount of money keeps coming in, then more people will come and work for you. I think my reflection is that children, people, money are all really important, but they're important in that order. So understand your charitable purpose, then help as many of your people to be as effective as they possibly can as much of the time in furthering that mission. And then in support of those two things, concentrate very carefully both on generating the income and spending it effectively. And if you do it in that order, then you don't look like a money bag that's seeking to generate income for its own sake. The income is for a purpose. It's for your people and it's for your charitable purpose. And you don't trade solely on the charitable purpose because you're also asking one another in the organization about how well are we all feeling? How productive do we feel? Are we getting the best out of ourselves and and one another? And I think that there is a risk that some of the, the people issues can get lost, but they can also get overplayed. <laughs> the people are here for a purpose, which is to achieve the charitable purpose. They're not here just to enjoy themselves and work in a way that they have always worked. And what is it that is your greatest challenge in delivering that sort of purpose and, and what takes up most of your time? One of the hardest things is constantly making choices about where not to focus attention in order to make a palpable impact on the difference that you do want to make. And that's what I felt coming into the NSPCC. And that's what I think now. But I remember having a conversation with my predecessor, but one, Mary Marsh, as I went into the NSPCC 10 years ago, and she said, well, that's all very well, Peter. All this strategic thinking is fine, but you will still wake up in the middle of the night worrying that not enough people are running the London Marathon or <laughs> throwing themselves out of aeroplanes. Or, And yeah, she's absolutely right. I mean, it is an incredibly difficult challenge year after year after year to raise 115, 120 million pounds a year. And we are overwhelmingly funded from voluntary donations. So that is a vital part of what we do. But as I said earlier, as soon as you look like a money bag who is overwhelmingly interested in generating cash, you've got a problem. It's got to be money for a purpose. So I think between Mary and I, we've got it right. And also interested to hear from you in terms of kind of crisis preparation obviously for some 
large organizations they've had to deal with some big kind of skeletons maybe coming out of the kind of cupboard in recent years how do you as a large charity kind of prepare for the possibility of a crisis what are the sort of steps that that you take uh, in order to sort of manage those mm. issues when they arise so there's some shorter term and some longer term i mean in terms of operational short term risk management is really important so we do spend a lot of time asking ourselves where the particular risks are to the organization and what are the controls we have over those risks and what are the actions we can take to mitigate them and if we're not taking risks as an organization we're not going to be making the difference we need to make so this is about risk understanding and mitigation not risk elimination but also it's about creating a culture in which where people spot a worry or a concern or an anxiety they share it with you sooner rather than later and that you genuinely are a learning organization which is taking to me and me taking to our trustees audit and risk committee you know the genuine issues where we have unfinished business and need to strengthen the understanding and the mitigations of of what we're about where it goes wrong is when people try to cover up or downplay or not articulate things which could be a challenge to the charity and then as everyone says you know the cover-up is often worse than the act itself and i wonder if we could briefly talk about some of the issues affecting the sector as a whole and how the nspcc is responding to those starting with volunteer management mm. you have somewhere in the region of about eleven thousand volunteers is that number going up or down or staying the same i would say it's going down mm -hmm. we have had as the backbone of the nspcc a branch and district network of people in the community who are mostly growing old together and did fundraising in a way that was fit for purpose and is still fit for purpose for them in a particular way but is quite different from how people choose to come together to fundraise probably on an issues basis or an online basis now. So that's a that's a strategic challenge for us. How do we celebrate and retain the amazing branch and district people who want to organize themselves in that way? And some have completely reinvented themselves and we've got younger groups of people working in that way. But typically, most people don't want to go along to a local meeting and elect a note taker and a treasurer and, and this sort of thing. Post pandemic, We've had to recreate our school service, Speak Out, Stay Safe, which was at the point of lockdown going into 90% of primary schools, no obligation for them to take it, but that was fronted by volunteers. And all of a sudden, those amazing people couldn't go into schools for a significant period. So we invented the front end of the service. And there's now a, a lovely online assembly, which stars Anton Deck, but it doesn't give the opportunity for the volunteers two years on to go in in quite the same way. So they are now supporting the service through follow-up workshops, for example, but keeping those people interested and engaged in the cause and then retraining and reconnecting them with the service has been 
a big challenge for us. And Childline, we've got some amazingly loyal volunteers who've been with us for a great deal of time. And then we've also, like many other services like that, got quite a significant turnover of people who come and do it for a while while they're at a particular stage of their life or whatever. And that's a constant issue for us to be across and to try and and manage. So yeah, big, big issue and really interesting work being done collectively by chief executives across the sector on this. I mean, Matt Hyde from the Scouts and Catherine Johnston from the RVS have been brilliant at leading. Well, it started off being about a dozen of us, but now there's about sort of 25 culminating in the big help out to coincide with the the coronation. That's an issue and a way of working for me that has been exemplary in terms of us coming together as a sector and asking ourselves what we can do with and through one another. And have you seen any immediate positive outcome from the Big Help Out? Yes, I think like lots of charities, we had a number of people who came through the website and signed up both on the day and and subsequently to do taster sessions in some of the volunteering opportunities that we've got available. But as a group, we were really determined that this was a moment in time and the issue is very much bigger. So I think we're all excited and interested in asking ourselves how we can build on this and share the development and the opportunities for volunteers more effectively with one another. So reflecting back on your past decade at the NSPCC, how has your personal development been and how do you feel, if you do, that you've become a better leader in that time? You don't know what you don't know at the beginning, (laughs) do you? So whether I have become better or more informed and more experienced, I'm not sure. I think with all these jobs, you do learn by doing. And as I sort of reflected earlier, I think I've become more appreciative and flexible about the different ways in which teams can be built to get the best from one another and that's staff teams multidisciplinary teams teams of volunteers and staff working with with one another there's there's increasing imagination and flexibility and opportunity for people to be themselves to contribute more i think we're probably i am maybe a bit less judgmental and a bit more appreciative of different character types and different roles in pursuit always of the charitable purpose which for me you know comes first and goes without saying so peter wanless chief executive of the nspcc thank you very much for joining us thank you We hope you enjoyed our discussion with Peter. And now for the next item. Since you're listening to this podcast, chances are that you listen to others as well. So we thought we'd provide you with a roundup of some of the great podcasts of the moment made by charities. We're joined by Justine Hendry, a director at Ultimate Content, where she works with charities and brands to produce podcasts and other media content. Welcome, Justine. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. You work with charities on podcasts. Why do you think that charities are well suited to the podcast medium and why is now a good time? 
The essence of charities, they represent people with remarkable stories. So whether they're a medical a charity or a volunteer group, the stories of the people that support them are very often very moving and lend themselves beautifully to podcasts. And podcasts provide a very safe, intimate space for people to share their stories in quite a trusted environment. So podcasts and charities are a fantastic fit. Charities have been dabbling with podcasts for quite a few years now. So in 2017 to 2019, you had quite a few po- uh, charities, not-for-profit companies and organizations and commercial brands having a go at producing what was new back then as podcasts. And some were good. Others might have required a little bit more production expertise, but it was a learning for all of us at that time. And then in 2020, obviously, the pandemic came and that sort of pushed us all into finding new ways to engage with our members or followers and different audiences. And it was an opportunity for more charities to try out producing podcasts. And then we had some normality back in 2022 last year and other marketing priorities may have taken a bit of priority within charity organisations. And then this year... It's so exciting. I cannot tell you the quality of the charity podcasts that have been bursting onto the platforms has been phenomenal. And we wanted to come in and share some of those with you. Yes, your enthusiasm is infectious. (laughs) (laughs) So let's get into it, shall we? What what are your top picks of the moment? The top of the bill must, must go to one of the most talked about podcasts this year, and it is Life After Prison. And it is produced by the National Prison Association with the backing of and funding of some lottery funds. And it is an exceptional series. And I really encourage everyone to have a listen. It's been running since October last year. It's weekly. It's got a big production team. But what sets it apart is it is award winning. If you've worked within radio and know uh, radio and audio industry well, we have our Oscars called the Arias Awards. And this year, the Life After Prison presenters, uh, Zach and Jules, won gold for best newcomer presenters, which is exceptional. As it says, it's Life After Prison. It's the very first podcast that's designed to support, inform, guide and inspire people who have served their time, have come out and are starting to rebuild their lives. And it is presented by the absolutely bubbly, infectiously energetic and positive Zach and Jules, who you warm to instantly. I believe Jules doesn't have any presenting background. Uh, Zach dabbled a bit in some podcasts after coming out and serving his time and both won the slot to present Life After Prison. The most important thing about these two presenters is that they have served time in prison. And so for that reason, the guests that they have, who most of whom have served time in prison, feel safe, feel that they can relate, feel that it's a private, intimate space that they can share really quite raw emotional, very personal stories and very moving with two presenters who they can trust because they know they've been through it themselves. Within the podcast series, they have two strands. So there is the general information, support, guidance podcasts, and then they have the big sit down that can feature people who may have served long sentences 
or even people who work within the prison services itself, such as the CEO of the prison service. And it's very insightful. And my favourite one podcast episode is the latest one. And it features one of the presenters, Jules, her father, Graham, Mm. talking about what it's like to be a father and experience his daughter going to prison. But what I will say is there's so much laughter in adversity. They find so much to laugh about. And so you come away feeling really positive and There's just so much to gain. And I will say the latest episode, there is a twist in the last 10 minutes. It's quite poignant. It had me grabbing tissues because it really, really was quite a moving experience. Yeah, it sounds wonderful. So that is life after prison for anybody who has been encouraged to listen. And it seems like it's that combination of the authenticity of the hosts having been through that experience of being in prison, but then also being on a topic that appeals, no doubt, to a much wider audience and the sort of people focus, the strong personal story aspect that comes out into it. So what is your second choice? Well, it would be very remiss not to include one of our own productions. And we are working with Diabetes UK. And a couple of weeks ago, we launched Diabetes Discussions, produced by my colleagues at Ultimate Content. And if you have diabetes, and there are millions in the country in the UK that do, it's unique for everyone. Everyone's experience of diabetes is a very individual one. And it's a fast moving area. There's new technology and medicines and ways of diagnosing it coming out every day. So the onus is very much on the person with diabetes to keep themselves informed and to always be learning more. So diabetes discussions features people with diabetes. And that includes a couple of celebrities so far. So we've had Nikita from Strictly, who talks about sport and exercise and achieving your goals with diabetes. We have professionals on the series and it is presented by the lovely Jack Woodfield, who is a Diabetes UK employee and has type 1 himself. And it's eight parts and it covers a range of topics from technology to mental well-being and it's been very well liked within the Diabetes UK and it's been commissioned for a second series later this year. Mm. Why should we listen to a clip? That'd be great. This episode is all about living with diabetes which is quite a broad topic so to start I want you both if you can to give me a one-word answer summarizing what living with diabetes is like for you. So Roxy what would your word be? My word would have to be roller coaster because I think it just sums up our daily lives of the highs and the lows with our blood glucose going up and down all the time. And it's just unpredictable, isn't it? I think that's a great word. Katie, what word would you choose? I think my word would have to be relentless. You never know what's coming next, a bit like a roller coaster. And there's always something new that's going to come up around the corner that you have to try and be ready for. So what did Diabetes UK want to get out of doing this? They really wanted to create a channel and a platform for people with diabetes to share their experiences and feel validated and feel like they are not the only ones going through the journey of having diabetes. So mainly it was a peer-to-peer opportunity to support each other. And then it grew into including some professionals that could provide a little bit more professional guidance as and when the topic required it. 
Good stuff. And those two very contrasting podcasts there. I think you've got one final one that you wanted to flag up as well. So center point is obviously important to us all and one of the key leading homeless charities in the UK. And they've been running a podcast series for quite a long time called Point Made. And it's a fantastic example of where a charity invests an incredible amount of time and resource into reports, looking at different issues that affect the people they're representing. And then not only just gives hands over the report to a policymaker, but actually takes the issues and the topics that come out of the report back to the people who it affects and gives them an opportunity to have a voice and talk about the issues raised in the report. And so the latest episode is one called A Place Called Home, and it features three very engaging ladies who have come through Centrepoint's services, and they share what it means to them to have a home, how they left living in social services to securing a home, and what it's been like moving into their new homes. Should we listen to a quick clip of that as well? That would be fantastic. Safety. It may seem like something basic, but actually when you don't have safety, it's the biggest thing for you. You know, you want to feel safe. You want to be able to lock your door. You want to be able to know that you're coming into a safe environment and it is home. And you also want to feel secure that this is mine and you don't want to feel like someone's going to take it, you know, lift the rug off of you. You want to feel like, okay, this I'm secure. Because once you're secure, you can build a life, you know, you can get settled. But once you're, if you're on edge, you know, you cannot do that. It's really interesting, isn't it? And, and you can definitely see the thread running through the ones that you've suggested there, Justine, that they're all about authenticity and they're giving voice to people with lived experience of the subject areas they're talking about. Exactly that. And often some of the best charity, voluntary, not-for-profit podcasts are actually presented by people within their organisation or their community for that very reason. It gives authenticity and it gives a platform for people to share their experiences. If a charity was thinking about starting a podcast, what would be your top tip to any organisation that was thinking about doing it? I think really think about what it is you're looking to achieve, who you're looking to reach and some of the topics that you're looking to cover throughout that podcast. And charities do produce them in-house, particularly if they might have an audio specialist in-house, or quite often they do use the expertise and commission a production company to work with them collaboratively to produce a great piece of programming because although anyone can record a piece of audio to actually make it engaging and very much owned by that organization it sometimes takes a bit of input from a team that maybe know a bit about creating great audio content. Mm, This would be a good time also to plug that we did a podcast episode back in October filled with practical tips on what to do if you're thinking about starting a podcast for your charity. The link to that episode, as well as the three examples that Justine has spoken about are in the show notes to this episode. So Justine Hendry from Ultimate Content, thank you so much for sharing your top picks. Thank you for having me. Well, that's all we've got time for in this particular episode of the third sector podcast but don't forget that our survey is still open we want to hear your thoughts about what you like and maybe what you dislike about the third sector podcast we'll put a link in the show notes 
and we would be really pleased to hear from you. And indeed, any thoughts you might have for future episodes, it takes just a couple of minutes to fill it in. And we are also always looking for submissions for Charity Change My Life to hear from your service users about how they have benefited from the services that you deliver. We'll be back next week to talk about how to land a high net worth donor. Looking forward to that one. Many thanks to our guests, Peter Wanless and Justine Hendry. And a huge thank you to our multiple award-winning producer, Nav Powell.